Today's scripture reading comes from Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing upon his word. Father, we need you for this word to be understood. But Father, this is not merely a lecture where we learn something, but this is your time where you transform our hearts, our wills, and our minds. Father, do that, for we need it. Lord, we are swayed so easily by the world and the philosophies of the world. But Lord, would you help us to see your son, Jesus Christ. May he compel our hearts to live like him. And Lord, may this be the time where you do it, your word piercing our hearts, and us, Lord, giving praise unto you. Be with all of us as we hear your word and give glory to your name. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue through the book of Exodus. And one of the things that we will notice is that the book of Exodus deals largely with the issues of justice. Justice. Moses is a man of justice. Here in this passage, we see Moses constantly defending the weak. There's three scenes. He defends the weak of a Hebrew brother against an Egyptian. He defends another weaker Hebrew brother against another Hebrew brother. And then he also defends uh, the women against shepherds who are trying to take their water. Now, this is kind of a touchy subject in our day and age. What is the church's role on matters such as justice? Now, to be clear, the church does have a role on justice. And why? Because God is complete justice. And the church occupies herself with the things of God. So, yes, the church is interested in justice. But the debate, my best guess, is, is what role the church has in justice. For example... If the session got together 
and decided that we were going to use our savings to buy M16s and distribute them to members of the church and to police the community so that Astoria will be a safe neighborhood, surely that would be a misuse of funds. That is wrong. It's a joke. It is, we are not doing that. Oh, man, you guys were just like, okay, sounds good. <laughs> we might need another sermon. No, that is wrong. That is not the church's role in justice. Man, first service was way more receptive. You guys, we do not take up arms, and then we do not police the city, and we do not say we are the defenders of justice. That is not the church's role when it comes to justice. But the church has a role. And what is it? And what is it? And, and I think this text begins to touch upon what the church's role is. It, it doesn't solve a lot of the debates, but it begins to touch on it. And it begins to inform the church how it should act when it faces injustice. Remember, this story is not just the story that was told thousands of years ago, but it is a story that has immense practical application for us today. Yes, primarily Exodus is about Jesus, but surely Jesus does have things to say about justice and what the church is supposed to do in this world. So we will be touching upon that. And I believe that what this narrative uh, raises up uh, will be quite interesting if you are in a community group. We will have the opportunity to discuss this text, and I think it will be fruitful in our um, conversations with one another, but I look forward to hearing your responses. But let us begin and see what this text has to say about justice and the church's role when it encounters injustice. The first verse, or first uh, verse we see here, which is verse um, 11, it says this, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, I don't know how familiar you, familiar you are with this story. I realized that I had been so plagued by Disney and all the movies that when I read the book of Exodus, I was actually surprised. Not that surprised, but I did have some bad information. And I remember reading the book of Exodus, and uh, my wife can attest to this, I watched The Prince of Egypt. And it's a good movie, but that's it. You can watch it, but it, remember, it's a movie with some myths behind it. Because all these stories of Moses shows Moses as someone who is conflicted about their identity. Is Moses Egyptian? Is Moses a Hebrew? But here in the Bible, there is no debate. Here in this one verse, we are told Moses is an Israelite. He never once thought he belonged to the Egyptian people. He was firm in his belief. In this one sentence, he repeats the phrase twice, my people, looked upon his people, an Egyptian beating one of his people. Moses was through and through an Israelite. Why is this important? Because it means Moses knew God. He knew Yahweh. He knew the stories of Abraham and Jacob. You cannot know the Israel people and not know their God because their whole identity is based on what God has done for them. So this is a man who was 
thoroughly trained in the stories and the narratives of the Hebrew faith at this time. This was also a man who was trained in the courts of Egypt. He had all the wisdom in the world. This is a man who was thoughtful and a man who communed with God. In verse 11, we see Moses at the age of 40. Now, all the movies that we see, Moses seems to be a reckless 20-year-old. But here, what we understand is that Moses was firm in his beliefs at this time. He knew what he believed, and he wasn't messing around, and there was no tension. And why is this important? Because the next action is quite interesting and has caused a lot of stir and debate amongst the Jewish communities and the Christian communities. As Moses was looking out to his people, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his own people. And so what does he do? He goes out and kills the Egyptian. Now this is an interesting point because in all the movies, Moses seems conflicted. He's saying, oh, am I Egyptian? Am I a Hebrew? Oh, maybe I am an Israelite. And then he sees the, uh, this Egyptian beating this Hebrew person, and he doesn't know what to do. And in a moment of panic, he runs, and he's trying to stop the fight, but he accidentally pushes the Egyptian man over, and the Egyptian man dies. That is not the story of Moses. Moses had planned out what he was going to do. In these verses, there is no hesitancy by Moses. Rather, he looks one way, then looks another way, and he sees the coast is clear, goes over, kills the Egyptian man, puts him in the sand, and then goes about his business. It's cold. It's murderous. Is it not? And then we see in the very next day, Moses doesn't have a sense of feeling guilty or anything. He just goes up and says, whoa, whoa, and tries to break up another fight. So here the question resides. A Moses man who is esteemed and who is holy and who knew God is what he did justice. Is what he did something that is to be looked upon with a favorable light? It's a question that is presented to you in your community groups in which you will discuss. I will present my interpretation. Again, you can disagree with me, but you'll be wrong. <laughs> there is much debate of whether this act is good or bad. If you read the Hebrew literature and the Midrash and all the rabbis who reflected upon this one act, they came to the conclusion that Moses did what was right. What was Moses to do? It would have been a bigger atrocity if he saw this strong, oppressive person beating down this weaker person and had just left. That would have been shameful. He, he left one of his own. And, and surely maybe Moses wasn't trying to kill him, but he had to defend his people. What he did was right, and it was inspired by God. Or maybe, if uh, you're not convinced of that, you might follow uh, the thoughts of Calvin and Luther. They believe Moses' actions were right somewhat. They hedge. They're confused and they're conflicted. They're like, yeah, Moses probably shouldn't have done that, but if we read the New Testament, it seems like what Moses did was good. 
And Martin uh, Luther and um, Calvin, they all look back to Acts 7 to get their justification. And I want to read for you uh, Acts chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. Stephen, as he's talking about the gospel, he comes to this one section and begins to talk about this specific act. And Stephen says, in verse 24, he says, And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man, and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. It seems that Stephen is showing Moses in a favorable light. So Luther and Calvin says, the New Testament has precedence of how we feel despite what we feel about the situation. But I don't agree with Luther or Calvin or the rabbis. So I went searching for a theologian who would agree with me. That's what all good theologians do. You look for someone who would agree with you. And aha, I found one. And luckily, it's a legit one. St. Augustine saw this act as something horrid and horrible. And I couldn't put it in my words, but he was able to articulate why I felt it was so wrong. The reason that it was wrong is because Moses did not act on anyone's authority. He had no right to do such a thing. Moses saw, Moses felt, and then Moses acted. And here, Moses himself knows that he did something wrong. And what's at stake here is this issue of authority and of being allowed to do something. Because in the next instance, when he's trying to reconcile the Hebrew brothers, I think they say it best. When Moses tries to reconcile and judges someone and says, why are you striking your brother? Mo that, uh, the person in the wrong says, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And the first question is the most interesting one because he's right. What right did Moses have to judge over them? He had none. He was raised in the courts. He, he didn't belong to them. He didn't uh, feel their pain. And no one had appointed him to be their defender. But yet here he is, coming from his throne, trying to judge the people, and they rebuke him. Now, if Moses felt like he was doing the will of God, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have reacted the way he reacts here. What does he do? He flees. He understands that what he did was wrong. And what the Bible tells us is that he was exiled. So at this point, Moses is no longer in the Egyptian court. Egypt hates him. He is no longer accepted by the Jewish people. It's pretty clear that the Jewish people despise him. And he is exiled and he is punished. He is cast out from the people and out from the land for 40 years. For 40 years, Moses' actions has caused him to be cast out. Now, when we think of Moses, we think of him as a pretty young guy, or he has a gray beard, but if you think about it, it's until he is 80 when he begins to deliver this people. And I just bring that fact up because our, our society thinks that real life happens at between the teens and 29. Real life starts at 80. That's when God really uses you. And I say... And I say that in jest, but it, it is something important that we realize about God. God has a timing for everything. 
And he doesn't want people to act on their own authority. He wants people to act on his authority. And again, as we go through this, we'll see Moses compared to Jesus a lot because it happens throughout the New Testament and Hebrew calls uh, Jesus the greater Moses. And it's important to see that Jesus never acted on his own authority. That what he acted, he acted on the authority of God. Jesus did not look out and see and all of a sudden decide to become a savior. He had to wait, right? When Jesus was growing up, we knew that we knew teenage Jesus knew who he was. When Jesus was growing up, we have that scene in the temple where he goes, I am in my father's house. I have come for this very purpose. And maybe when he was 23, 24, he could have done some serious damage, but he waited. He did not move because he did not act on his own authority. And it's interesting to note John chapter 2, Mary, his mother, when they're at the wedding, they say, Jesus, can you perform this miracle? But Jesus says, my time has not yet come. Jesus' actions all predicated on the authority of God. And when do we see Jesus receiving that authority to become our Redeemer and our Savior? It's not when he was born. It's when he's baptized by John the Baptist. There he is baptized. The prophecies come true. And then that is when Jesus begins his ministry. Remember, Jesus doesn't just say, I'm sick of this carpentry business. Running a small business is impossible. I'm going to be a Savior. He doesn't say that. He waits for the time, and when God appoints him, man, he moves. He moves. And that, the, the, the question of authority becomes very important throughout the Bible. Not just in Moses' story, all throughout the Bible, the importance of authority is key. Listen to the Pharisees when they talked about Jesus. They didn't talk about mainly his miracles. If you read the book of Matthew, they are obsessed with Jesus' authority. Who gave you this authority? It's, it's, it's almost flashback to Moses. Who made you prince and judge over us? And that's what they kept repeating. And listen to what Jesus says, chapter 21, and 21 verses 23 and 27. This is Matthew. And when he entered the temple, that's Jesus, the chief priest and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you? this authority. Jesus answered them, I will, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answer Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It's gangster. But here he's making clear that he has authority from God to do these things. And why is the issue of authority so important? Because when God commissions something, it takes the Holy Spirit to accomplish, it, to accomplish it. We cannot do things on our own power because what God asks us to do, it's impossible. Moses had the authority of Pharaoh and he used it. What did he do? 
He used his brawn. He used his power. He used it to kill another human being. When Jesus had authority, what did he do? Did he come, gather an army, wield a sword? He used that authority to die for his enemies, to die for you and me. When you are given authority by God, he is asking you to do the impossible. He is not asking you to wield your strength, your worldly strength. He is asking you to wield the strength that comes from heaven in which you are to serve your enemy, serve one another, to love. When God gives you the authority to be Christian, to be an elder, to be anything, he is giving you the authority to love and it will not happen unless it is granted to you. This is why the authority of God is so important. We will see that every time someone acts on their own authority, they revert back to old school power. They revert back to armies. They revert back to doing things their own way. But when God gives them the authority, he does things that can only be done by God in which God is praised alone. This is why authority is important. And this is why the question of authority becomes the central question throughout the whole Bible. Who sent you? Every prophet. Who sent you? Who sent you? How do you know? That is a main question that begins with Moses. Who has made you prince and judge over us? And Christ comes and boldly uh, proclaims, God has sent me. God has sent me to do his deeds. Going back to the story of Moses, we see that Moses is, final, is exiled from the land. We see that he is now in a position to do nothing. He thought he was in a position of power. I, I mean, I sympathize with Moses. Here he is. He's, he's obviously an Israelite. He knows why he's there. Okay, I'm pretty sure he figured out that he was the only Hebrew there because of why? Because he was adopted. And then he's asked, why was I adopted? Why are my brothers and sisters not here? And he says, oh, Pharaoh probably explained to him, we actually tried to kill all the boys at one point, but we adopted you. And he's like, okay. He knew the stories. He knew what was going on, and he knew God. And so probably he thought to himself, maybe I'm in this position to carry out God's will. And without any authority, without consulting anyone, without praying or doing anything, he goes out and kills an Egyptian. Now, I don't know what Moses' plan was. I really think about it. I don't know what his plan was. Was he going to be a spy and secretly kill all the Egyptians and lead a revolt? It probably wasn't well thought through. But here we see that he is finally exiled, that he can do no harm, but the Lord still redeems him in this scenario. Even though he is exiled, God gives him rest. God gives him a family. After Moses acts again on his uh, justice instincts, he, he helps defend these women. And in that process, becomes, uh, gets a family. He marries Zipporah. But after he has a child, we see the heart of Moses. Moses is not content where, where he is. For his heart still longs for the people of God. He names his son Gershom, which means I am a sojourner in a foreign land. 
So every time Moses goes, Moses goes to pick up his son or care for his sons, he is reminded that he is still a stranger in a foreign land. That his home, that his heart is still with the people enslaved over in Egypt. But this time he will not move until God gives him the authority. And we see that in the chapters to come. God will come to him and give him the authority. And at that point, and only then, Moses will move. Now as this story ends, we, we think about Moses and the mistake that he might have made. But the story, thanks, to be, thanks be to God, does not end there. For the, we have a couple more verses that come that are quite interesting. Here we see for the very first time, God appears on the scene. And I don't know if you've noticed, but over the course of all these years, chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, is when God finally appears. God is now going to act. The story began with Moses looking out and Moses seeing and then Moses acting. This narrative ends with God beginning to look, beginning to hear, and then God knowing. And that last verse or that last phrase is the all-important one because it all it says is God knew. And there's nothing more frightening or awe-inspiring when it is confirmed that God knows what he's going to do. Because when God acts, things change. Worlds change. Societies change. And I do want to bring up the fact that God only appears when? When the people begin to pray. For the first time, we see the people finally cry out to God. And they groan and they cry and God hears them. And then God begins to move. How does this apply to us today? This applies to us today because there's injustice still here in this world. We look all around and there's injustice everywhere. And as our church, we need to be concerned with the injustices around the world. We cannot just be occupied with ourselves. And as we look at these injustices, we need to look to the one who has authority to take care of these injustices. And who has that authority? It's Jesus, and it's only Jesus who has that authority. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, All authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. And so as Christians, when we see the injustices around the world, we begin to pray fervently to Jesus for him to deliver his people. And we don't just pray for a heavenly hope. We do pray for that. But we also pray for injustices to be solved now. That is the duty of the Christian. Now, I know there is some backlash against it. I know the church has been criticized because all they, do, all they seem to do is pray. But I think we have a misunderstanding of what prayer is and what prayer looks like in our Christian understanding. When we say we need to pray about injustice, I think we have the precious moment picture in our head. Now, do you guys know Precious Moments? Precious Moments was this weird movement where they put little kids with big eyes and they just like prayed and we thought it was cute. It was good, 
but I think it did more detriment to the evangelical circle. Because when we say to one another, there's an injustice in the world, we say pray, that's the image we get, right? I'm going to go to my room, I'm going to have, it's going to be nice and quiet, and I'm going to pray for these injustices, and I'm going to come back out, and hopefully God will answer. But if we look at the Bible, prayer was corporate, and it was messy. I think as evangelicals, sometimes we'll say just pray what we're trying to say or what it seems like is being said. Be a good citizen, be silent, and pray in your room. But here we have the Israelites who did not, were not silent. They groaned and they cried out. There were prayers where people were crying and tearing off their clothes because they were in such distress. This is what the church needs today. The church needs to pray, and they need to groan, and they do not stay silent in the face of injustice, but they cry out to God because only God can deliver these people. Where the church possibly has gone wrong is that we have put our trust in old-school power, the policies, the politicians, the guns. We put our faith in these things, which aren't inherently bad, but they can't change people's minds. They can't change huge systems of injustices. Only Christ can. He must do it. And the people of God cannot be silent in the face of injustice. They need to get together and begin to cry out for God to change. Because there are people all across the world that are suffering injustice who are believers, and that is our brothers and sisters who are being oppressed. And so when we say pray to Jesus, it does not mean go home individually and pray silently. It means that we need to get together and with other churches and begin to cry, to shout, to groan so that the people of God would be heard by God himself and that he would move. And Jesus does move in this way. The Bible shows that God does not, that the prayers of his people do not fall on deaf ears. But God hears, God knows, and God moves. Brothers and sisters, we have a great high priest who hears our prayers and who wants to do these things. And some of you may think, well, it's weird that we are only, so are you saying Jesus can't act unless we pray? If Exodus 1 and 2 show you everything, God has already been moving and has been in the works. We just pray so that we may see God actually act. That we would have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and see that justice come upon the earth. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we worship a powerful God. We thank you that you have given all authority to your son, Jesus Christ. Lord Father, what we have to do and what we, when we see these things, it's an impossible, insurmountable task. But thanks be to God that we have a great intercessor who is able to bring justice upon this world. We thank you, O oh God, that you have given us the avenue of prayer, that we can pray for these things, that you hear these things and that you act. We are not a, you are not a God who quietly sits back, but you are a lion that roars. Father, help us to see you act throughout the earth so that we may praise your holy name. Lord, we come to you, Father, as a church, crying out to you. We thank you, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.